Well, we finished a story last week that we took two weeks on, the story of twin sons, uh, Jacob and Esau. And it was a great story. It was action-packed. It had lots of narrative tension, uh, winners and losers. We did see, however, that there was not a good guy among them to be found. Uh, they, all the characters were deeply flawed. And this week we're going to zero in on what comes next for one of those deeply flawed characters. One of the winners, Jacob, the younger son of Isaac. What we're going to see as the chapters unfold, he's in for some hard times. The, The homebody who loved to hang around home is going to be forced out, forced to flee, in fact, hit the road, to find a wife, but really running for his life. And so on the surface here at the beginning, things appear really, really bad for Jacob, for this one who came out of the womb, grabbing his brother's heel. We're going to see what unfolds, maybe in some unexpected ways, maybe in some amazing ways ask you to stand if you're able. It's a shorter passage this week, Genesis 28, 10 through 22. These are the very words of God. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep, and he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I'm the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. And you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. May God bless the preaching of his inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. Let's pray. Oh God, would you appear to us now on a Sunday morning in May in Orangeburg? 
much like you appeared to Jacob thousands of years ago in a dream while he used a stone for a pillow. Would you appear to us vividly and richly through your powerful word that your spirit inspired, that you have preserved down through the years for our benefit? Would you appear to us now in glory, in power, and would you bring with you transforming grace even as you brought it to Jacob? We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. Now, I'm not quite sure what Jacob expected, but I'm pretty sure it wasn't this. He had deceived, he had stolen, he had blasphemed God. Now he was a fugitive, literally running for his life, probably wondering if Esau was hot on his heels and gaining ground. He's got to put some distance between them, but on this day, he can't go any further because the sun has set. And apparently he is in the middle of nowhere because there's no hospitality to be found, no one to offer him a bed in their home, which was very standard for the culture and the time. He's left to sleep out under the stars, actually quite dangerously. But he must be exhausted because he is quickly off to sleep, even with a stone for a pillow. And the strangest thing happens while he is sleeping. God appears in a dream. And what you and I should be impressed with, need to be impressed with, is how very gracious this appearing is from start to finish. Absolutely everything about this appearing is incredibly gracious. Layer upon layer of grace. For starters, Jacob wasn't looking for God. He wasn't seeking him. He was too busy running from danger to even think about him. He couldn't be seeking God. He wasn't even awake. Right? How much more passive can you be than dead asleep? I mean, I guess if you were dead, that would make you even more passive. But he is dead asleep. He is not seeking. It's, it's reminiscent of Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, who also had the Lord appear to him while he was in a very deep sleep. Just to drive home the point, this is God's doing. He was taking the initiative here, not man. This, this very gracious appearing has a, has a mysterious quality to it, does it not? The Lord appears in a dream. And the specific content of the dream involves this ladder. Uh, some of the commentators, they quibble. Uh, maybe it's not really a ladder. Maybe it's a staircase. 
maybe it's more like a stone ziggurat, like a stepped uh, pyramid-like structure. Okay, maybe. Um, I'm more concerned about us paying attention to the, the very simple things that we can observe here, that we can see. Whether it's a ladder or a staircase, I don't care. There is a chasm. That's probably the most important part. There is distance separating God from man. Uh, There's distance so great that something has to be introduced to overcome that distance. Now, a lot of commentators, helpfully here, I think, see a connection between what's going on here with another attempt to bridge a chasm. Right Earlier in Genesis, the people realized and recognized, hey, there's a big distance between us and God, but you know what? If we put our minds to it, we can do anything. We're going to overcome this separation. We're going to build a tower. And you know how that turned out. Same way it always turns out. Anytime man tries to do what God has designed and purpose that only he should do. He frustrates their efforts to the hilt. So notice there is a chasm. Notice too, God desires to bridge that chasm. But it will be done with his method and his timing. And that's what we're seeing here with Jacob's ladder. There is a chasm, but God, the Lord, is standing at the top while his angels do their thing. They're coming up and down. They're going out to do his bidding. They're coming back and going back to him. God appearing like this comes as quite a shock and surprise to Jacob. He didn't see this coming. There's a lot of language built in here associated with surprise. Several times we get the word behold, which is like, hey, would you look at that? Behold, a ladder. Behold, there's angels. Behold, the Lord is at the top. He is surprised in the dream. He's even more surprised when he wakes up from the dream. Verse 16, he says, surely he's here. And I didn't even know it. There's this element of surprise because he wasn't seeking the Lord. He didn't expect him to show up. Not now. Not given recent events, especially. But the surprise is more than just that God showed up. It's also what God did when he appeared. And maybe what he didn't do when he appeared. I'm sure part of Jacob might could expect God to show up in a bolt of lightning and judgment, in a a whirlwind of wrath and fury, to deliver a curse for Jacob because of the mess that he had created. That he might could have expected. There's no way he could expect the appearing of the Lord To bless him. Which is exactly what he got. How amazingly gracious. The Lord appears to Jacob. 
on the heels of his deception and theft and blasphemy, he appears with blessing and not a curse. He delivers to him exactly what his father Isaac had already told him. That all the promises given to grandfather Abraham were also promises meant for you, Jacob. The same three promises. This land. Numerous offspring. And in those offspring, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. I'm sure that Jacob was happy to hear those promises reiterated by his daddy. Perhaps that would be enough to cause Jacob to even believe the promises were true. But to hear them again straight from the mouth of God. How gracious. And you would just have to expect that when God opened up his mouth speaking to Jacob, he would need to start with some correction, some some reproof, some some redress for uh, all that had gone on. Some uh, look-a-here, buddy. It's time to shape up or ship out, right? But there's none of that. There's no demands. There's no conditions attached. This is pure grace. And honestly, some of us continue to be uneasy with that. It, It just doesn't sit right with us. Uh, Jacob should have to pay for what he did. There should have to be some kind of cooling off period with God before he blesses him. If not, Jacob might get the wrong idea. If he doesn't get a good chewing out, how's he going to learn? He might end up thinking that grace is free or something. That he doesn't have to do anything to earn it. If you're scandalized by the the sheer grace of this, just wait, there's more. See, it's not just the Abrahamic promises that are repeated and reiterated. God adds on. He, He makes more. He makes new promises for Jacob, the scoundrel. Three, in fact, you see in verse 15, I'm with you. I'm going to keep you. I'm going to bring you back. Those are huge promises. This is, in fact, the very first time in Scripture that God promises to be with someone. I am with you. This is the first time. It won't be the last. And that one gets repeated over and over and over again for God's people. His presence is is precious. So, too, is His protection that He'll keep you. And and this promise that he will finish what he started, that he'll be faithful no matter where the unexpected turns may take you, I'll get you back. I'll get you safely home. I will fulfill all that I've promised to you. Now, granted, Jacob probably has no clue what timetable God is on here. And that it's about to be 20 years until he (laughs) is faithfully brought back. But he will be and will get to that in the weeks to come. But I need to pause and ask an important question here. Do these promises made to Jacob mean anything for you and me? 
Can I claim these promises as my own? Can you? That God will be with you? That he will keep you? That that he won't leave you until he is done with all that he promised? Can we claim these as our own? I was tempted to answer, yes, but. But instead, I'm going to answer, yes, and. Yes, I think we can claim these individually. It it jives with the rest of Scripture. I think there's plenty of scriptural warrant for us to claim these. And I know. I doubly, triply, quadruply know that we can claim these together as the people of God. Let me explain. As we are trying to determine the usefulness of a passage, and they're all useful, 2 uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, right? All scriptures God breathed. It's useful for all of those things that, that Paul lists there to Timothy. As we're seeking that usefulness, we cannot bypass the original recipients of the passage, the original audience. And I've mentioned that before, especially with Genesis. We're not sure where God's people were when Moses got it finished and first read it to them. They could have been any number of places. They might have been on the the edge of the promised land about to go in. Or maybe it wasn't even Moses who finally got it to them. Maybe it was some editor who finally got the finished product ready. And they were already in the promised land. But doggone it, if they weren't constantly being attacked and invaded. It could have been later, although I don't think it was quite that late. They, They could have been in exile. Right? What message would God be trying to get to his people through this author Moses... That he's with them. That he'll keep them. That he won't stop doing those things until he gets them safely home. See, that's got to be our first step. What did it mean to them? What was the message for them? And then we can connect the dots to where we are today. And with Jacob, that dot connecting is quite easy because who is Jacob? He's not just one random dude. He represents the whole people of God. What's his name going to get changed to? Israel. The promises God is making to him are really promises that he's making to them. All of the people of God, which in the Old Testament we know is Israel. And in the New Testament we get even more clarity that the This whole time he's been talking about true Israel, not a a flesh and blood thing, but a, a spirit thing, which in the New Testament, of course, is the church. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were just as much a part of the church as you and I are. And these promises are promises that God's people have always needed to hear and be reminded of, that we need to hear and be reminded of. Because here's the truth. Very often, God's people feel like 
God isn't there. Very often, God's people feel forsaken. They don't feel the withness, the with you-ness of God. We need to be reminded of His promise. I will be with you. I will be with y'all. I will keep y'all. No matter the reason that at that moment you might not feel that, and there's a whole host of reasons that we might not feel like that's true. You might be in some really difficult, hard situation where you don't feel like that's true. Maybe some situation through no fault of your own. Or maybe through some situation that is through fault of your own. Maybe you're in a hard place because of your own folly. Your own lack of wisdom. You've you've screwed up. And you don't feel as if God is there. You don't expect Him to show up just like Jacob didn't expect Him to show up. Maybe it was like Jacob and it was through your willful sin and rebellion and that's why you don't expect Him to be there. Because of the mess that you've made. But you've got to remember, when did God appear to Jacob? On the heels of his sin and rebellion. The, the taste of forbidden fruit still fresh in his mouth. That's when God made these promises to Jacob. Not later after he got his act together and polished himself. No. That's why Jacob said, I didn't know. I didn't expect him to be here. That's the last thing I expected when I'd blown it so badly. I thought for sure, God, you were a million miles away. I didn't know you were a God like that. A God of so much grace. So, how does one respond when you've received grace like that? We see Jacob's very gracious response here. And and not gracious in the sense that I'm saying, oh, look at how gracious Jacob was being. No, I'm saying, look at this response of Jacob and how grace enabled this response to come out of him. We see three very specific things that Jacob does. They are a direct result of his his receiving such amazing grace. Number one, he worships. Verse 18, he woke up, he took that stone he'd been using as a pillow and made it a pillar instead. He stood it up, poured oil over top of it. Oil often used to, to anoint something special or sacred to set it apart. He poured the oil from top to bottom. There's symbolism there even. He understood these blessings to be flowing from top to bottom, much as he saw the Lord at the top of the ladder. He gave that place a special name. It just so happens it's the same place that Abraham built an altar and worshipped way back in Genesis 12. Just so happens. After Jacob received amazing grace from the Lord, it was his impulse his, his instinct to worship. No one had to tell him to do this. He just wanted to. It just felt 
proper and right. And it is. If you and I have have experienced, and I mean truly experienced the grace of God, we will have a worship impulse. We'll have this worship instinct where it just wants to come out. I hope that was true for you this morning. I hope that's why you're here this morning is because you just can't help yourself. I hope that it's not a, oh, I just, it's what I'm supposed to do. It's Sunday. No, I hope it's your heart's desire. I, I, I hope you feel like being in his presence is better than a thousand days elsewhere. Like the psalmist said. He worships. Next thing we see does, he makes a vow, verse 20. Ugh, now some of us see this vow making. We say, uh-oh, here he goes again. Scheming. Wheeling, dealing, bargaining. Does does God need to earn Jacob's loyalty? It kind of reads like that, I guess. If you do these things, then you'll be my God. And and sometimes people do that. Sometimes they try to manipulate God and get him to do something for them that they think he doesn't want to do. They feel like the vow is some kind of leverage to get God to do for them. But I I really don't think that's what this is here. The the, the thing Jacob includes in his vow is the very thing God just promised to do. Jacob's just repeating it back to God. I, I don't think that's problematic at all. Frankly, if anything, I think it is commendable faith on Jacob's part. He's taking God at his word. He's holding him to it. Isn't that what prayer is? God, uh, you said in your word that you'll do X. God, I'd really like for you to do X. Would you do it? I'm not bothered by this if-then language. We might not even be reading it exactly right. I think it's more like, so so if it's going to be like this, God... If this is the kind of God you're going to be, well then, duh, you're going to be my God. If this is the reality of who you are, then this needs to be the the reality of who I am and who you are to me. Third thing that happens in Jacob's response truly comes out of the blue, even more so than pouring oil over the pillow. He worships, he makes a vow, and he says, I'm going to tithe. I'm going to give you back a tenth of everything you give to me. Who told him to do that? The the law hasn't even come yet. No one, as far as we know, tells him to do this. It seems to be another one of those impulses of having received grace. of, Of being transformed by grace. It just seems right to him to give back. Some of what he's received. Now, we should acknowledge this does not sound like Jacob. Not the Jacob we know. Not the the heel-grabbing, animal-skin-wearing, deceiving, scheming, blaspheming, lying Jacob. Doing whatever he can to get whatever he can. This, This newfound and sudden generosity... 
That seems a bit unnatural. Because it is. It's very unnatural for someone like Jacob to now be the way that he is. But that's what grace does. It changed Jacob from a grabber into a giver. Just like it changes us. In in, in some ways, sometimes it's overnight and it's instant. Other times it comes and fits and starts and won't be completed until we're dead. We know Jacob's story. Um, He's not finished yet either. He's not done being a schemer. Old habits are going to die hard, just like they did for Daddy and Granddaddy too. And, and, And perhaps Jacob can sense that. Perhaps that's part of why he sets up the pillar like he does. So he can find this spot again when he comes back. He wants to remember. Perhaps he knows that he even needs to remember. I need to remember that place where I got all that grace. I need to remember that place where he showed up when I had made a royal mess of everything I touched. I need to revisit that place again and again and again and be reminded of how amazingly gracious he was to me. At a time when all that he deserved was a curse, he got blessing instead. Perhaps that's what this whole story is about anyway. Even the latter. Bridging the chasm. What's going on with this image? It is an important picture. There is a chasm. There is distance. There is separation between God and man because of our sin and rebellion. And it won't be a tower built by our hands that will ever bridge that chasm. In John's Gospel, John is recording Jesus calling all of his disciples. Uh, He calls Philip, chapter 1. Then Philip goes and gets his buddy Nathanael, and they come to Jesus. And Jesus tells Nathanael right away, Oh, I know that you were standing under a fig tree before Philip went and got you. And Nathanael's mind is just blown. He's like, that is the coolest thing ever. (laughs) You've got to be God or something. And Jesus, in my rough translation, said, You know what? You ain't seen nothing yet. Uh, John 1, verse 50, Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, Jesus is absolutely referencing our passage here from Genesis 28. But there's no ladder. Because Jesus understands himself to be the ladder. He knows he is the only possible bridge for this chasm between holy God and sinful man. He knows that his coming 
is the ultimate example of fulfilling the promise, I will be with you. I will keep you. And I will never leave you until I'm done doing all that I've promised. And so one day when God's people were in the messiest of messes they had created for themselves, when they most desperately needed to be reminded of these promises, God sent them a promise through the prophet Isaiah. He said, guys, watch out. There's a baby that's going to be born. And his name is going to be I am with you. God with us. Emmanuel. And you know the baby would be born and he would live perfectly. He would die sacrificially. He would rise again. And even when he was returning to go back to the Father, the promise is renewed again. Reminded again, I'm with you always. I'll never leave you. In fact, while I'm physically gone, I'm going to leave my spirit with you. God's spirit now indwells us. There's never a moment in our lives for the believer when he is not with us by being in us. How amazingly gracious is that? Let's pray. Oh God, would we would you help us to expect your appearing? even in the messiest of messes that we make for ourselves, even in the hardest and the darkest situations we find ourselves in, whether by our own doing or not, would you help us to expect your gracious appearing? May we less and less have the response of, I didn't know he was there. And may we grow to say, of course he was there. Of course he'd show up in a moment like this, because that's the kind of God that he is. That's how much grace he has. And Father, most of all, as we prepare to come to this table now, would we expect for Jesus to show up at this table? Oh, Father, may we not ever be able to cry out, I didn't know he was there when it comes to feeding at this table. Oh, by your grace, give us the faith that we need to believe that he's there. We ask in his name and for his sake.